0: This is The James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on The James Altucher Show. Every therapist goes to a therapist, right? Are you required to go to a therapist?
1: We are, to get licensed, we have to do a certain number of hours of therapy. I mean, I do all the things with my therapist that my patients do with me.
0: But what do you mean?
1: All the things, like you want your therapist to like you. You know?
0: It's really, it's a relationship. Right. And and it's stressful because at first it feels, well, here's, here's, here's what I'll ask you about. So at first it feels really fake to me. Like I'm paying somebody maybe a lot of money to listen to my problems, and I'm really worried. Are they going to just be bored? Are they going to think these aren't really problems at all? What's the therapist thinking?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the therapist is trying to say, why is this person telling me this? What is what is the reason for this story? Um, and I think I think, too, we have this saying that there's no hierarchy of pain. I was treating somebody who had terminal cancer, and then right after I'd have to deal with things like, I can't believe the babysitter is stealing from me, or why do I always have to initiate sex? And, um, you know, and, and I think that when we go to process, what's underlying that, why do I always have to initiate sex, is about rejection and how do I connect, and the babysitter's always stealing from me is ultimately about I trust this person with my child and this person has betrayed me. And so I think that there are larger issues underneath what seem like trivial problems.
0: But see, what you just said there is very interesting because the way I almost view therapy now is that you're like a statistician in the sense that I'll go in to therapy and say, okay, XYZ happened. Mm -hmm. Now that's the first time I've dealt with XYZ, but you've seen it a thousand times. So after XYZ, you know... 90% of the time, ABC happens. I don't know that. And so I want to know what you statistically in your brain know. I want to just get that information. So excited to have Lori Gottlieb. Is that how you say your last name? Gottlieb? Gottlieb. Gottlieb with me today on the podcast. Uh, Lori, I've been... Reading your dear therapist columns in the Atlantic, your your columns before that in the Cut about uh, was it titled "What Your Therapist Doesn't Tell You"? Was that the title of that? It column? was
1: called "What Your Therapist Really Thinks."
0: What your therapist because that's that's really what I want to really what I want to talk to you about on this podcast is what your therapist really thinks. I've been going to therapy for well, let me see how old am I now? I've been going to therapy for about twenty six years, and every kind of therapy possible, like every type of individual therapy couples therapy been to a million couples therapists (laughs) been to a million other therapists and i always go and first off let's finish the intro you have a book coming out in april uh maybe you should talk to someone uh we'll talk about that in a second you also had a book uh marry marry him this the case for settling for mr good enough uh and i remember when you first had your column on that uh, in the Atlantic was the, where the column first appeared.
1: Uh, yeah, I wrote a piece about it. Yeah.
0: Cause I remember being scared to death when that column came out a, because I didn't want to think women were now settling for me. <laughs> and, uh, so I didn't want to think I was just Mr. Good Enough. Uh, so it got me, it got my own insecurities came out from that column, but, uh, what's, what's the book out uh, going to be about? Maybe you should talk to somebody.
1: Uh, Maybe you should talk to someone is about kind of the behind the scenes of the therapy world told from the perspective of me um, treating my patients in therapy, but also me in therapy with my own therapist.
0: Oh, okay. That's interesting because every therapist goes to a therapist, right?
1: Yeah, sure, of course. It, I mean, it would are you be required
0: like, to go to a therapist?
1: We are. To get licensed, we have to do a certain number of hours of therapy. But, you know, it's the kind of thing where I think the more experience that you have knowing what it's like to sit on that side of the room, um, the more you can— empathize with your patients and you know what it's like. I mean, I do all the things with my therapist that that my patients do with me. So just because I'm a therapist doesn't mean that, you know, when I'm in the room as a therapy patient that I'm acting like a therapist.
0: But what do you mean you do all the things with your therapist, like meaning talking about problems and...
1: Well, sure, but also all the things, like you want your therapist to like you. You know, you, you don't want to think about the fact, like when you leave and you see another patient in the waiting room, you think, you know, I, ho- I hope he likes me better. Um, I think, you know, all yeah, the sort really of normal true. things. It's yeah, it's really true.
0: It's a relationship. Right. And and it's stressful because at first it feels, well, Here's 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 what I'll ask you about. So at first it feels really fake to me. Like I'm paying somebody maybe a lot of money, to listen to my problems and I'm really worried. Are they going to just be bored? Are they going to think, um, you know, these aren't really problems at all. Like I, I was talking to a, a comedian once and she was working on a on a joke where her therapist is an ex-refugee from isis and like she and her joke part, she was trying to figure out what's the right way to enter into this joke should she consider like complaining about how she's decorating her living room and he looks all bored because he's really a refugee from isis so this is just not important at all but in any case i sort of feel the same way like i'm describing my problems and each time you have a new therapist it it starts the same way where you have to give your whole history and what your problems are and why you're there. And I just think, are they just bored out of their mind talking all day long with people who have what seems like non-problems to them?
1: Right. Well, I would say two things about that. The first is that if you're just going in and talking about your problems, but you're not really understanding what's driving them, then you're kind of wasting your time in therapy. So therapy isn't just a place to go dump your problems and leave. You're like, "Uh uh-oh, that's what I've been doing for 26 years. (laughs) Well,
0: no, I think I I always go to therapy because I want them to be my problems to be better. I want my life to be better.
1: Right, right. So, so you can talk about your problems in the context of hopefully with your therapist, your therapist is helping you to see, you know, it's kind of like editing a story, right? We come in with stories and the therapist's job is to say, well, what material is extraneous? Is the story advancing or is the protagonist going in circles? Do the plot points reveal a theme?
0: So, so what do you mean? Like, what's an example of that?
1: Well, I think if someone keeps coming in and saying, you know, I have problems with, you know, they have problems in all of their relationships, right? Well, what's the theme? Why does that keep happening? Um, You know, as opposed to just the nitty-gritty, he said this, and then she said this, and then we did this, and, you know, the back and forth of all that.
0: Right. You talk about that in, in one of your columns, and I thought it was genius that there's the content of what they're saying, and then there's the process. Right. So it was a column about, um, a couple arguing and someone always brings up, well, maybe we should just get a divorce. Yeah. And so there's the content, like maybe they're arguing about, Oh, who cleaned up enough, but, uh, and, the, and that content might change per argument, but underneath it, there's some kind of underlying fear and insecurity that this is all leading to a divorce. And so that's the process.
1: Right. Exactly. So when people are threatening divorce, as opposed to thinking about it and then talking about it, um, but when they impulsively say in the middle of an argument, you know, I want a divorce, um, that's them not being able to handle their anxiety about something that's going on in the relationship. But they need to talk about what's going on in the relationship. Um, And so there's, you know, what we say the content up here and then the process is, is down here. Um, and most people stay up in the content. And what we do in therapy is we go down into the process because the process drives all of our behaviors, decisions, choices, basically the way we are in the world.
0: So I want to I get to that, but I want to continue with my initial question, which is—
1: The boredom question?
0: Yeah, just is the therapist or psychiatrist just, just bored? Here's a first-time right. person. Right. They're telling their story. And it's a, uh, maybe it's a long story or media. It has to be a little bit long. Like uh, you, people go through many things. Uh, what is the th- What's the therapist thinking?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the therapist is trying to say, why is this person telling me this? What is mm. what is the reason for this story? What am I tr- what am I going to understand about this person from this story? Um, and I think I think too. Um, you know, we have this this saying that there's, there's no hierarchy of pain, meaning people come in with pain. Pain is pain. And so, you know, I was treating somebody who had terminal cancer, and then right after I'd have to deal with things like, you know, I can't believe the babysitter is stealing from me, or, you know, why do I always have to initiate sex? And, um, you know, and, and I think that people would wonder, you know, how do you go from the person who's dealing with CAT scans to somebody who's dealing with these other problems? But I think that, again, when we go to process what's underlying that You know, why do I always have to initiate sex is about rejection and how do I connect and the babysitter is always stealing from me is ultimately about I trust this person with my child and this person has betrayed me and so I think that there are larger issues underneath what seem like sort of trivial um, problems
0: but see what you just said there is very interesting because the way I almost view therapy now is that you're like a statistician in the sense that I'll go in to therapy and say, okay, XYZ happened. Now that's the first time I've dealt with XYZ, but you've seen it a thousand times. So after XYZ, you're, you know 90% of the time ABC happens. I don't know that. And so I want to know what you statistically in your brain know. I want to just get that information. So I'm, I'm very tactical now the way I use therapy. And I don't, I don't know if that's right or wrong.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. I'd never thought of it that way. To me, I think each person is so unique. So, yeah, I might have seen the same sort of problem a million times, but I haven't seen that person. And so I don't really think just because I've seen 10 people deal with this exact thing that the next 10 are going to have the same situation, you know, are going to have the same outcome with it. So it's but, but really— But isn't it
0: still likely? Like, let's say— um, you know you see 10 people who say you know oh i you know i can't find the right babysitter mm-hmm. or whatever uh the next thing for each one then you might they might all be kind of self-entitled in some way or i don't know they might there's probably some common characteristic uh
1: Right, right. There'll be some common characteristic, but the, but how that characteristic came about in that person will be different, and that's what they really need to understand. Why do they keep going in circles? Why do they keep getting stuck in the same place over and over?
0: Hmm. So, and so, so do you ever not like the the patient?
1: Right. That's such a good question because that's one of the things before I went into this field that I remember thinking about that. Like, what if I don't like somebody? What do you do? Um, You know, and I think that – and then a supervisor said to me, we're talking about this when I was training in my internship, and she said, there's something likable in everyone. It's your job to find it. And so sometimes you have to look really hard. Most of the time you don't. Um, I think that that once people once you can see past the way that people are using defenses to cope in the world, like their defenses could be, they're really an a- they they seem like an asshole. Um they're really abrasive. they're they complain a lot. Um, whatever it is, um, those are just their defenses.
0: well, whats what's an example where um someone came in, like so I love that quote. There's something likable in everyone. Mm -hmm. But what's an example where it was particularly difficult for you to like somebody? You had to really remember that quote and and think about it in in order to like a patient.
1: Right, right. Well, in the book, one of the patients that I see is this very self-entitled Hollywood producer. And it, at our very first session, he tells me that he's going to pay in cash because he doesn't want his at the door because he doesn't want his wife to know that he's seeing a therapist. And he says, you'll be you'll be like my mistress. I'll just come here every week, dump all my problems on you and leave. Or actually not my mistress, more like my hooker, because you're not the kind of person I would choose as a mistress. That was hard to like.
0: Yeah. Like, yeah. why would someone say that?
1: Uh, well, like there's, there's, when you, so, there's when sort, sort of a to-
0: control thing there. in someone saying that.
1: There's a there's a lot of cluelessness and a, and a lot of um, yeah a, lo- a lot of ways of kind of pushing people away of of not wanting to let people know that you need them that but you so- need their help.
0: But someone who's like such a success in their field, it doesn't matter if he's a Hollywood producer or anything. But mm-hmm. in this case, he's a Hollywood producer, so he's had success in. He's had to work well with people because to be a producer, you have to convince studios, directors, actors to all fit into your agenda. How could he be so clueless in this one case as to say something that's so tone-deaf?
1: Right, right. Well, I think he, he's tone-deaf more generally. Um, you know, he can fake it at work, um, but he's, he's he's very impatient with people. He has a lot of trouble. You know, everybody's an idiot in his mind. Um, you know, so, his, so, his, his so, whole okay. thing is sort of like, how do you manage the idiots,
0: so, so is this? Are we talking about Scott Rudin here? <laughs> 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 I don't know in person. I just read stories. So, uh, anyway, we're, I'm just kidding. we're not
1: talking about Scott Rudin. <laughs> um,
0: yeah. So, what do you do? How did you find the likable in him? I mean, a okay, you could say that was a little bit funny what he's saying if if he didn't really mean it. <laughs>
1: well, he was he he kind of he kind of um, delivered it as a joke, uh-huh. but you know not a joke.
0: Right. Yeah. So how did you find your way, how did you find your way through the maze there?
1: Well, I think what you have to do is, you know, you have to really get to know somebody. I mean, what my supervisor was saying was, you know, once you get to know somebody deeply, it's very hard not to find something likable in them. And I think that's true. I think we would have world peace, actually, if, uh, if you know, you get the world leaders in a room together and you have them really get to know, you know, their hopes, their fears, their vulnerabilities. Um, people become very human But in that clearly, way.
0: some people don't like other people. Like, that's why divorces happen. Like, if in every relationship, for any two people, if they just la- knew each other deeply, would they always like each other, or should some people? I think they
1: would find things that were likable about the other person. It doesn't mean that they would be compatible, but mm. it means that they would find something that they could connect with on a human level about the other person.
0: Hmm. So, what are what are some other things that I would not expect my therapist is thinking while I'm in therapy?
1: Um well, going back to the boring question, you know, I think a lot of people worry about whether they're boring their therapists, and the boring people are not the people who come in with you know quote unquote trivial problems. The boring people are the people who don't let you get they they don't they don't want to be known, and so they deflect um they smile through their session. Um, you know, they're just they they go off on tangent after tangent after tangent when you try to kind of get in there with them. Um, they're people who keep you at bay. Those are the most boring people, the people who keep you at bay. They won't let you in.
0: And how do you how do you uh break through?
1: You point out what's going on in the room. You tell them about your experience. I wouldn't necessarily use the word boring. Um, but I would talk about the fact that it's it's really hard for me to uh, to connect with them in the room. It's really hard to um, to figure out sort of, you know, what they're trying to tell me.
0: So I find what what you just said, I just, in my head, I've been calling that type of thing labeling, where you're having an interaction with yes. somebody where it's not going, you don't understand what's happening, or it's not going the way you want, or it's an argument or whatever. And I find it to be very useful to Take a step back and label what's happening. Like, did they just change the subject instead of the original subject? Or are they not answering a question or they're answering a question with the question? Like I find it's useful to label what's happening in the conversation. Is that is that sort of what you're doing there to, to break through?
1: Yeah, it's sort of pointing out, you know, what's going on between us. Out in the world, people don't do that, right? It would be very stilted and that. odd. Okay. <laughs> Okay. But I think, I think out in the world in general, maybe, maybe in your relationships you do it. But, but just when we're having conversations with people, um, you know, we don't tend to point out all the, the subtleties that are going on beneath the surface. Um, but in the therapy room, that's really a place where people are at their most human. And so I think when they're at their most human, you can say, hey, we're going to talk on this level. And it's not weird. Um, And and in fact, it clears out a lot of the junk, right? It clears out a lot of the trash, so that you guys can have a conversation about what you really need to be talking about.
0: So, like with this Hollywood producer, were you able to say when you when you got comfortable enough in therapy, were you able to say, "Hey, that way you introduced yourself was probably inappropriate," and you do that with other people?
1: Not in the first session, no. I mean, it was at the door. Yeah. Um, he was leaving. Um, you know, so it was more, I, it made me curious. I sort of tagged that for the future, you know, in my head. And we do that a lot as therapists. We tag things, you know, it's like, it's like timing is really important in therapy. And so we work really hard to help people to struggle less, but we have to form a relationship with them first. And so if we can't form a relationship with them, nothing we say is going to sink in with them. They're not going to be receptive to it. So we do a lot in the beginning. We front load with establishing the relationship.
0: And how do you do that considering most relationships are are give and take, but you're never revealing about yourself? Like that's kind of taboo in, in therapy. Like how do you do that without being vulnerable yourself?
1: Um, you know, I think that people want to be understood. And so if a person feels heard and respected and understood, um that's going to make them trust you more. And I think too that, you know, we do reveal things about ourselves in therapy. I don't I don't mean that we reveal, you know, extremely personal things, but I think that, you know, there are times when we very strategically and very intentionally will reveal something if we think it will benefit the patient in that moment. Like what? Um Someone might want to know that I have a kid, um, if they're really struggling with something with their kid, or that I've experienced that with my own kid. Um, You know, somebody might want to know that I struggled with, uh, you know, choosing the right career. Um, I, I won't necessarily say that kind of thing often. But, um, you know, if it comes up and if it's really related to that—an example that's not me would be, you know, I've had colleagues who um, a parent committed suicide and someone came in and that person's parent committed suicide and and that person decided not to reveal that. But another person had a kid who had Tourette's and that therapist had a kid with Tourette's and and she revealed it. And it ended up really, really being meaningful to the person who came to see her.
0: Do you ever uh, find yourself judging— your patients. So, if someone comes in and says something you find ethically horrifying, do you do you say it? Do you say what? Well, what do you do?
1: Um, I I don't. I think in the beginning it was harder. I think when I was doing my internship and people were telling me all of these different things. Um, I think that I wanted to put a lot of distance between my dark side and their dark sides. But I think that what you come to see is that, you know, they made these decisions for a reason and they're coming to you because they actually want help with it. And so I think that that's important to remember. And I think the other part of it is that, um, you know, more than judging people, um, people will do things that just, you know— basically ensure their own happiness. You know, they keep like doing the same thing over and over or they'll say, I'm about to do this or make this decision. And I want to say, no, don't do it. You know, because they just keep sort of screwing up their lives. And so you you want to kind of step in there and it's like, don't go in the basement again. It's dark down there. Um, so it's less judgment and more kind of protectiveness, I think.
0: And so are you able to say, you, you can't say don't do this, but what do you say? <laughs> Do you remind them the last ten times they did something, or
1: I, I might say, "Why in the world would you do that?" Huh. <laughs> you know, I mean, I have to have a relationship with them first. I wouldn't say that early on, but I would say that after I got to know them. Like, you know, what, what, why in the world would you make that decision? <laughs> it sounds really judgmental when I'm saying it here, but in the context but you could of point our relationship, out
0: prior times when they've made similar decisions. Oh yeah, so that you could back up that statement.
1: Oh yeah, yeah.
0: So so. I'm always trying to hear—I feel like there's this great opportunity here where I could just figure out everything my therapists through the ages are thinking about me that I never knew about. So, like, what else would be something that a therapist might think that the patient's not expecting or suspecting?
1: I think that people don't realize that we care, too, about what our patients think of us to some degree. Um, so, you know, I have a chapter in the book called Embarrassing Public Encounters, where, you know, when people see their therapists outside of the office, nobody knows who they are except for the patients. We're like Z-list celebrities. Like nobody knows except for the person who goes to them. Um, and so, you know, you don't want to be— you know, you want to present well outside of the office. And there are times that, you know, you'll run into your patients in these really kind of embarrassing situations. And I think that people forget that we're human too. And we're just, you know, people in the world. Um, I think it's kind of like your teachers when you're a kid, you know, like you only imagine them in the classroom. And if you see them out in the world, it's a very, it's very discombobulating. I think it's the same thing that, that therapists are kind of thought of as, you know, they exist in the office, but they don't exist outside the office.
0: So what's a way, so, okay, so, so, therapists also care what their patients think of them. Like, what should, how should the patient, how can the, the patient make use of that to have the best possible relationship with the therapist?
1: I think that, um,
0: like, you know, they should the say, that, Hey, you helped me last week. That was really good.
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, positive feedback is nice, but I think there's also, there are also people who do that a lot because they want to ingratiate themselves with the therapist. I don't think there's anything the patient should do. It's just, a reality that, um, you know, we want to help people. And when people, um, you know, we want people to, to respect us just like we want, just like the people who come to us want to be respected by us.
0: So, you know, one thing I've noticed, there's like all these different kinds of therapy, right? And, uh, I really, I mentioned earlier that I almost view therapy as like statistics, you know, an example might be, Oh, somebody I'm very close to is mentally ill. Uh, I've been in this caretaker role. Uh, what usually happens, and then they've seen that situation a thousand times, and they say, "Okay, well, you should be doing this, 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 and this." And usually, they're correct about what they suggest. Right. And so, but I find, at least the therapists I've gone to and the ones that have been, I only go to a therapist when it's he or she's been recommended to me. Uh, Nobody really asks me about my past anymore. <laughs> or Actually, I don't even know if it's ever happened. No one's asked me about my parents. I don't think I've ever spoken to a therapist about my parents. Is that, like, unusual? Because I would think normally the, the cliche is, you know, tell me about your mother, tell me about your father.
1: Well, why are you going to therapy?
0: I mean, uh, it's, it's different reasons. I mean, it's over the past 26 years, it's different reasons each time. The, this past... Set of years. It's because I was dealing with someone close to me who was mentally ill, and it just kind of evolved out of that.
1: Um, why do you keep switching therapists?
0: Usually, I would go until I felt like I either wasn't getting anything anymore out of the relationship with the therapist, or I thought that the therapist was not that good, or because, like any profession you know, 80% might be not that great and 20% are good. Um, And it takes a while to realize. Or I might have moved. And then when I moved, I didn't restart anything with anybody. Uh, So it's usually never... um, I don't know. It's it's usually not me saying, uh, oh, everything is totally solved and I don't need therapy anymore. It's usually some other either they've demonstrated that they've given very bad advice and i and i couldn't follow it or
1: what kind of, uh, what kind of advice was was bad advice that you got
0: um i'll give you i'll give you an example one time i was so i have two kids from mm-hmm. my first marriage and one time i was with somebody who uh, didn't really get along with my kids or didn't want to be in the house at the same time as my kids mm-hmm. and so if i wasn't there and my kids were knocking on the door, even though they had their own bedroom in my house. She wouldn't answer the door. And we went to a couples therapist, and the couples therapist agreed with her that I had to be there. And they were very quiet, good kids, not disciplined problems in any way. They would just go into their bedroom and study. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought that was bad advice.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so
0: I, I stopped going then.
1: Did, did, but you kind of knew your answer right before you went to the therapist. Like yeah. something felt wrong about that. Yeah. 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 So, what were you wanting from the therapist? Like corroboration, or
0: yeah, or or maybe explaining to both of us how we could compromise on this issue ah. instead of just saying, "Okay, James has to be in the house when when they're there." Um, you know, I didn't like being in the middle between this woman I was seeing and my kids. Right. So I kind of wanted a solution with that, and I, I wasn't, I felt we were very far. We were like 10 steps away from getting anything what I wanted in, in that conversation.
1: What, what's so interesting to me about that, and it's so common, is that you were going to therapy because you wanted a solution, right? You wanted to kind of work that out. But I don't know what went on in your couples therapy, but... I would imagine that that the the real issue was, you know, between you and your girlfriend, like what's her deal with your kids.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess <laughs> right? and we didn't really get to any of that. So I maybe I could have pursued the conversation that way. I just didn't know how.
1: Well, right, most people don't. Um, and I,
0: and I think I tend to be afraid to I'm I'm very non-confrontational, so I'm hoping the therapist could kind of handle the confrontation part. <laughs> Somehow.
1: Right. Well, what you we bring up is such an interesting point because it's the question of, you know, do people go to therapy to get a solution to a problem? Um, like a very concrete prescriptive advice, like so, in my advice I column, do go for that. right? Um, so like if you had written that into my dear therapist column, I would give you an answer. Um, but if you came into my therapy office, because with my column, I only have a letter. I don't have the context. I don't have the other person's side of the story. I have one person's side of a story, and we're all unreliable narrators. And what I mean by that is we're, we're not lying. We're just telling the story through our particular lens. So it's always very interesting to me, like for example, if I'm treating a couple and a colleague of mine is treating one of the individuals. And if we have to confer about anything, um, and we have releases to do that. Um, you know, it's so interesting because the person seeing the individual only knows one side of the story and I see the couple every week and I have a much fuller picture of what's going on. And so if you wrote that letter to to dear therapist, um, you know, I'd have a very specific answer for you. If you came in with your girlfriend, I wouldn't have that specific answer. I'd want you guys to start talking about, well, how does she feel about kids in general? How does she feel about your kids? How do you feel about being with somebody who treats your kids that way?
0: Right. Well, it, it all ended up working out one way or the other. But uh, uh, you, you addressed something similar in one of your Dear Therapist letters where someone um, someone's spouse didn't like the, um, the husband's friend. Yes. So they couldn't spend a lot of time with his friends. And um, you make the point that, you know, when someone marries somebody, they're by, they're not just marrying the person, they're marrying the whole package of friends, family, and so on, which I felt was related to this issue I had. And, um, but then you offer, you know, uh, various ways to compromise, which I thought was very fair. And given that you didn't know the full story on, mm-hmm. on both sides. So, so a lot of times with your columns, I sort of, Look at the column and try to figure out how it fits into my own life. Because after so many relationships and jobs and situations and decades of living, almost every situation can fit into some other situation that I relate to. So I, I think that's a, a big benefit of your. You should just you should collect your columns into a book too.
1: Maybe <laughs> focused on that the could be like one, a
0: companion book too. Exactly, the, exactly. So so do therapists ever Google their Patients, you're not supposed to, but do they ever do it?
1: Do they Google their patients? That's such a great question because um, when I, my very first patient so I was, the way that therapists train is that you go, it's like doctors in a teaching hospital, right? And in me, I went to medical school before this. And in medical school, you know, there's this saying like, see one, do one, teach one. That's how you learn. Like you, you, you watch someone, you know, um, palpate an abdomen or start an IV, um, you do one yourself, and then you teach one to the next medical student right? It's, it's, it's just trial by fire. And it's the same thing with therapy is that you go into your first therapy room, you've watched a lot of hours of tape, you've done all your graduate work, but you've never been in a room by yourself and you can't have someone else in there with you. You It's not like, can you bring my supervisor in with me? Um, so the first person that I see is this woman who I know nothing about her. There's like a little intake form that just name, address, you know, age, that kind of thing. And, um, she comes in and she tells me that she's really depressed and the next thing i know she is crying but like crying like you know level 4 tsunami um it just it's not anything that that it, there was no warm up there was no like you know a, a little bit of tears in conversation leading to this and i i just you know didn't know what to do um and so, I'm sorry, back to your question was... Um, uh,
0: do you Google?
1: Oh, do you Google. So this woman, and then the more I started talking to her, the more I found out that, you know, she was, like, very successful and she had a boyfriend and, there, you know, all these things about her life. And I was like, that's really interesting. Um, she was she was really, really falling apart in, in the room. Um, she was, like, unkempt. She hadn't showered in a while, you know, all that stuff. So I actually Googled her um, just to see, like, Who is this person? And my supervisor said, never do that. And I never did it again. Um, I didn't know. I thought it was, like, going to help me get some information about her. Um, But it didn't. You want to just have the relationship in the room with them. You don't want to have any additional information um, because it kind of sits there, you know, between you
0: why? Like it seems like you would want as like, like information is power. So you'd want to know as much about the person as possible. But
1: I also think that what people choose to reveal to you is very important to getting to know them. So what they choose to reveal and when they choose to reveal it is all kind of grist for the mill.
0: So let's take, let's take the example of the Hollywood producer again, Mm -hmm. because he's very Googleable.
1: Did not Google him.
0: Right. So, so one thing he told you in that communication—that for all I know—is his communication to you at the, when he's paying. And one, the first thing he said to you that stands out is not so much the hooker or the mistress, but the fact that he didn't want his wife to know that he was in therapy. So that mm-hmm. that seems like a real informative thing. And then, of course, how he behaved afterwards—that could indicate all sorts of things. But. The, the critical thing, it seemed to me, was somehow he didn't have this open line of communication with his wife that he could say he was sharing his issues with a professional. When that's a very common thing, right? And uh, but then using Google, does this Hollywood producer just make X-rated movies, or does he make you know cartoons for kids? Like it seems this would be useful information to know.
1: Uh, yes, um, but it would sort of it would come out over time. Um, and and more than sort of what he does was sort of what I'm most interested in with any patient is how do they interact with me in the room because whatever people do in the room they inevitably do outside we all do I I do too whatever I did with my therapist in therapy I do outside in the world um, for example going back to Google I googled my therapist um, and I've so, never
0: googled my therapist right
1: I I this was the first time I'd ever done that and it was in the context of he was he was it was something that he had said in the room and i was trying to do the thing that he said and instead i was at my computer and i typed in his name and and i had been seeing him for a while at that point this wasn't i wasn't new to him and um and i found out all of these things about him and one of them was that um his father had died suddenly um at a you know at a young age and so another time I was in therapy and I was talking about my own father with whom I'm very close and I was talking about how he was aging and I was having a hard time dealing with the fact that, you know, I'm worried that he's going to die. And, um, and I realized that, you know, my father is in his 80s and my therapist's father died much younger and he never had a father in his 80s. And I edited myself because mm. I was worried that it would be painful for him to talk about for me to talk about so
0: it's almost just as bad for the patient to google the therapist right because right you because, don't because you edit yourself. edit yourself
1: and and also you don't want to and also it's really embarrassing that you googled your therapist and so you know i i knew who his wife was because i googled you know i didn't know her personally but i mean like i knew lots of facts about him i knew how old his kids were i knew a lot of things because there's a lot of stuff on the internet even if you don't want to be found you can find it so, you know, there were times when, you know, like I had to be careful not to drop in that I knew something, and eventually I fessed up and we had a conversation about that.
0: So, so, uh, whenever I enter a therapy session, it feels very awkward. Like you sit, mm-hmm. it's like, come on in, you sit there. How do you begin? What's the best way to begin talking? Like I usually don't even know what to talk about.
1: Right. Those are. And, usually- and you know,
0: sometimes also, just sorry to interrupt, but sometimes I feel like, Oh my gosh, I have I have no problems this week, or nothing's really come up. Like it's almost like homework. Like I gotta think of some problem to talk about on the way there.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, we've all had that experience. I think you know it's like I'm I'm, things are really good. I don't really want to go to therapy today, Um, but I think those are actually the best sessions because if you come with an agenda, you end up talking about that thing the whole time. And if you come in and you just take a minute, and a lot of people have trouble kind of sitting in silence. Um, And it feels like forever. If we say like three minutes of sitting in silence, it feels like 10. Um, But if you just come in and you kind of, you know, you have to kind of make that adjustment from the outside world where you've got your mind going, um, those tend to be the sessions where you have no agenda, you have no preconceived topic. um, And wherever your mind wanders to is usually a really, really fruitful place.
0: Hmm. So so sometimes I'll go in, I feel this is like real, a real personal podcast, like I keep talking about, feels very vulnerable to keep talking about the fact that I go to therapy. There's still, not that there's a stigma to it, but there is a little tiny there bit. There is, I think, <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, uh, sometimes I'll go in and she'll say, so what's going on this week? How are you doing? And even though I might have something on my head that is a problem, I'm almost afraid to say it because I don't want to just go in and start I don't I usually don't see people and start complaining about my life. So I feel awkward.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard it, to break
0: that initial ice each each session.
1: Yeah, and I think there is really just a big sort of just like mental transition from the way we interact in the outside world to walking into a room where there are no phones, nothing's beeping, there are no distractions, uh, there's no screen anywhere, there, n- there aren't other people in the room, and you're sitting face-to-face with another person. We get that so rarely
0: nowadays. Yeah, and I guess I guess maybe that's why I've, you know, used the metaphor of the statistician because it's almost like drying up the, the, the content of that interaction to being like almost like a math equation feels a little easier. Like, okay, I'm dealing with, you know, one plus two plus three. What what's the answer?
1: Right. See, yeah, I think therapy really is is it's so relational. Um, it's very it's very it's sort of the opposite of the statistician. It's incredibly relational. Rate relational. It's it's very intimate. Um, and I think that you know there are. Things that—it's not really so much what I know about people, but experiences that I've had in the room with people that are incredibly powerful and moving. Like uh, like what? Um, you know—
0: you that, that difference between knowing and experiencing.
1: Um, dealing with the woman who was dying of cancer, right? You know, she was going through her death, processing her, her dying with me. And I had never done that before with someone young. I had done that with older people, but I had never done that with someone in her
0: 30s. Did you feel self-doubt? Did you feel unqualified?
1: I did. I actually didn't want to take her on, and I told her that. (laughs) Um, But she wanted to come to me because she didn't want to be with what she called the cancer team. She didn't want, like, all the sort of, like, pink ribbons and sugarcoating and optimism and, you know, like, she knew she was dying. And she wanted to be with someone who would see her as a person first and, and a cancer patient second. And she felt like with the kind of, with the cancer specialist that, and true or not, um, because this was just her perception, she felt that it was just cancer all the time. And she wanted to talk about her life. And we went through, you know, an incredibly moving experience together. So I think that, you know, you have that experience. And she was, she was married and I think, you know, she had an experience with her husband too, but I had a different experience with her that was, I think in some ways, you know, maybe just as intimate.
0: Do you ever get situations where someone sees you and then someone they've spoken about starts seeing you, but they don't they each don't know that they're both seeing you?
1: Actually, a colleague of mine had um uh two people who were who had just who were getting divorced. The first the husband came to see him and then He didn't know, because they had different last names, that then the wife came to see him. But he didn't know that they were the same people until he started hearing the same story from both, you know, from different sides. And then he had to stop seeing both of them. Ah. Um, Did he
0: explain to both of them? Oh, of
1: course. Of course, yeah. That
0: must have been awkward for both of them, though.
1: Well, they were referred by the same friend. Oh, okay. (laughs) And the friend didn't realize that that would maybe be a conflict of interest. But I do see people who know each other in the outside world. Friends will refer friends. Um... And sometimes, um, you know, it depends how close they are. It depends, you know, what the relationship is. Um, I had a situation where somebody referred her friend, and it was my impression that they were friendly but not close friends. And they later became roommates. And that, that, you know, I think presented some awkwardness.
0: You know, do you ever, like— uh, like earlier you were saying how maybe in some cases like this the one with cancer you felt unqualified but do you ever get emotionally affected so that you can't you can't just leave it in the office you go home and you're and you've had, you've heard 10 horrible stories that day from 10 different people or however many people and you're home now and you know how do you kind of distance yourself from things that might be just emotionally uh very trying
1: Yeah. You know, I I think that um, people think of therapy as this sort of place of pain, you know, where people bring their pain. But there's also a lot of joy in therapy, right? Because you see people make changes. You see people, um, you know, doing things outside of their comfort zones. You see people changing their lives in these really substantial ways. And so interspersed with some of the more painful sessions, and there are many of those, um, are these other ones that are incredibly inspiring and uplifting. Um, and so I think it's a mix. But, but yeah, you know, there are, uh, the things I think that affect me the most are the ones that are about the way people are treated as children, because I think children are so vulnerable. And so either I'll hear something from a parent talking about how they treated their child, and those are sometimes hard for me. Um, and I think um, hearing about how my adult patient was treated as a child, some of those stories can be really intense.
0: Yeah, so how do you, and and particularly if you hadn't been treated that way as a child so you don't have the direct uh, experience of it, how do you, A, deal with that and, B, then move on to the next patient or move on to your home life or whatever?
1: Right. Well, I think it affects me because I'm a mom. And when I hear what's happened to some of these people, you know, I, I couldn't imagine that happening to my son. And so I get – I feel very um, – you know, I feel a lot of empathy or a lot of compassion for them, um, and it, it's hard to hear. But I think that you, um, you know, you deal with sort of what's in front of you the way they do. If you can't, if you can't imagine a different future for them, um, if you can't hold the hope for a better future for them, then I don't know how they can. And so, really, you're a container for the the hope for something different to happen. And I've seen it happen so many times that that I I know it's there.
0: Um, is it a myth that uh, uh, if someone tells you they're thinking of committing suicide, you've got to call the police or the authorities or something?
1: Um, it's not a myth. I think what you do is you have to assess the situation. So we do have a duty to protect, which means that, you know, if somebody says—we also have a duty to protect others. If they say, I'm going to go murder my wife, well, we have to take action, Right. Um, but, um, you know, people talk about suicide a lot, but there's a difference between suicidal ideation, which is just the concept of, you know, like I'm feeling suicidal, um, versus I have a plan and here's how I'm going to do it. And, um, you know, I have nothing holding me here.
0: So what do you do then?
1: Uh, you mean if they really are going to commit suicide, then we have to take action Then we have to, then we have to, you know, get them in a place where they can be protected. Usually we, we hospitalize them.
0: You know, but people could, you know, so I've I've dealt with that with a family member where I, you know, had to contact their therapist and the therapist was willing to send police or an ambulance over to where they were.
1: We yeah we try not to do it that way. I think that's really that's really you know like if we have to we will. I mean usually we want the person to we want to help the person find a way to be safe. And so we will say to the person you know can you stay with someone? Mm-hmm. Is there someone you can stay with? And we talk to those people so they're aware of the situation. You know so they're with them twenty four seven. You know can we can you. Can you and whoever, whatever family member or friend, go to the hospital and stay there for 72 hours so we can kind of, you know, keep you safe for right now and and figure out what's going on? Usually it's temporary, meaning that, you know, usually people are feeling suicidal because in that moment, in those hours, in that day, they feel like there's no hope. But if we can get them past that, then they're very, very glad that they are here and that they are able to, you know, be here and move on.
0: And so... Do you, do you see a therapist now? Uh
1: not right now, no.
0: How come? <laughs>
1: um you know, I went and the, the book is sort of about my experience with um with this therapist. Um I feel like we worked through what we needed to work through. I don't I don't think therapy is is sort of this thing where, you know, it's like you put it in the oven and it's baked and it's done. Um I feel like you get to a place where I'm good now. I'm good now. And I
0: guess it's hard to know though. Like like I've been I guess I've been seeing my like, current therapist for exactly three years and it's it, you know I've had my ups and downs and usually mm-hmm. when I have my downs or not, not even downs like I'm depressed but downs where I'm dealing with a complicated situation and I need help solving it and my friends can't help me solve it I need sort of an outside mm-hmm. expert who's seen a thousand similar situations to help me solve it you never know when those are going to come up so I just sort of keep going
1: Right, right. You know, the, the therapy is just, it's a weird business model, right? Because it's like the goal from day one when someone comes to see you is to have them leave because that's what we want for our patients. We want them to be independent. We don't want them to be dependent on us.
0: But sometimes I see therapists where they're always trying to leave a cliffhanger so they never lose the patient. What does like, that mean? Like, um, okay, we ha- it's enough this hour but next time we have to talk about, you know, this, and there's always the next thing that they want to talk about. And there's it, it, it. some therapists you asked before, like what makes, you know, why would I stop seeing a therapist? Mm-hmm. Sometimes I would sense that a therapist is trying to keep me a patient forever.
1: And did you bring it up? Uh, no, no. I think it's hard to bring up with your therapist. Yeah. Um, I like to talk about termination with my patients. You know, I like to check in and see, you know, how are things going and, you know, what do we think is happening here and and how long do you think we need? Because, you know, I I want people to be thinking about leaving, not at the very beginning. At the very beginning, they come in. They came in for a reason. Something is troubling them. Um, But once we've been going for a while, right, whether that's six months or a year, um, I'll start talking about it, you know, just see where things are. Um, I don't, I want people to, I want an open line of communication about leaving so that people don't have to feel like, you know, they're staying even though they don't want to, or they're not getting anything out of it, or, um, they feel guilty bringing it up or they just disappear. Right. Um, because I think those are sad endings, I think for the patient and, and for me too, but I think, you know, for the patient, I think having the experience of being able to say goodbye is really powerful and usually people, you know, just in the world in general, we don't have the experience of of having a really fulfilling, satisfying goodbye
0: so so i uh, I agree. like sometimes i'll I'll disappear from mm-hmm. a therapist. and but then a year later, I realize i need <laughs> I need a therapist again, and then you're embarrassed to I go, go back. back and I'm embarrassed to go back. Right. Is, it, is it embarrassing because it's not like a friendship. like it's more like a lawyer. <laughs>
1: Right but but uh, see I I might say I might say if that person came back I might say talk about sort of how it ended and why it was hard for them to tell me that they wanted to leave.
0: Or or similarly I might not mention something important to a therapist cuz I'm embarrassed about it.
1: Right. Now that's the And more- it'll
0: come up later because then it'll become too important later.
1: Right, right, and that's actually in 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 my book. That's 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 what happens with me, and that's what happens with a lot of my patients. Is we, we all have these secrets, and sometimes we we're aware that it's a secret and we're not mentioning it. Other times we're not so aware of it. But you know, it's like we'll come in with one thing, and we you know we want to be well thought of, and so we don't really we're not really ready to talk about this other thing. Um, So, so many times I'll find out, you know, months in something that was really, really important, but the person didn't tell me because, you know, they were afraid to, they, they didn't know how to talk about it. They were embarrassed.
0: And, and do you address the fact that, Hey, why didn't you tell me about that?
1: Yeah. Not like that, (laughs) (laughs) but um, that was really (laughs) fucking important. (laughs) Like what the fuck fuck are you thinking? (laughs) Um, out. Yeah, no. I mean, I might, I might say, you know, I'm really surprised to hear that. You know, was it hard for you to bring that up, or how long had you been thinking about telling me about that?
0: You know, what do they say?
1: Well then we'll talk about it, you know, like oh I, I I was I thought I should have told you, but then it was too late and then I didn't know if it was too late to bring it up and now I have to bring it up and we'll talk about why what what they thought would happen if they brought it up or what I might think of them if they brought it up, or sometimes people don't bring things up not because they're embarrassed, but because they know that if they bring it up, now they'll have to address it. So Mm. if they don't talk about it, you know, it's kind of like they can just keep doing like they're drinking too much. They don't really have to bring that up because if they bring it up, now they're going to have to talk about it. Yeah, so. They're cheating. They don't really want to bring that up because it's kind of just an emotional affair and it's not really anything. So they don't really need to bring that up and they're focusing the whole time on my girlfriend this, my girlfriend that, my girlfriend this. But they've never mentioned they're having this thing on the side.
0: And then once they bring it up, like that changes the whole conversation. Well,
1: right. Yeah.
0: And they say, "Listen, I should have told you this," but and then how do you?
1: Sometimes, sometimes they don't even say. It. Sometimes they're like, "Oh, by the way, there's this thing we have called a doorknob disclosure," which means that often people will tell you something that's very hard for them to talk about at the very when there's like a minute left in the session, you know, or even at the door. It's like. I found my biological mother on Facebook. See you next week. <laughs> You're like, "What?" Um, you know, so so often there'll be like this disclosure at the at the very end when there's and they do that on purpose. You know, because then you can't really talk about it and then I have to sit with, you know, whatever feelings about it for the whole week and they feel relieved.
0: Well, they but they have to sit with it too and this but but it's easier for them. They feel like, "Okay, I revealed it. Now a week's gone by.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Old news." Right. Right. <laughs> so uh, what's what's like one more thing my, I might not be suspecting my therapist is thinking, not bad or good, but just something I should know about how my therapist is thinking when I'm in a therapy session?
1: You might not be thinking about everything we're noticing. Um, you know, you might be thinking that we're really focused on the content of the conversation, but I might be noticing where you're looking in the room. I might be noticing your leg that's, you know, going up and down. Um, I might be noticing. Um, what do you
0: derive from that? From all of that?
1: Well, you know, like, is it hard for you to, if you're looking away a lot, do you do that with other people? Is it hard for you to maintain eye contact, or are you talking about something where maybe you're not being truthful, or maybe you're embarrassed? Um,
0: you well, know, what do you think is a sign when someone's not being fully truthful about what's going on in their life?
1: I think it's hard to know. I think it's different for every person. I mean, I think people who, who, again, who like talk a lot about content that seems really irrelevant, those sometimes are people who are not really telling you what they need to be
0: talking about. Hmm. And I think that's probably true in general in life. Yeah. But, uh, so what else, what else is in your, in your book? I want to I wanna your book's coming out in April, so hopefully will you come on again before your book comes out? Because it's all it's only October. Yeah, I, yeah. I a, I'd love to. I have a thousand more questions. We didn't even get to uh marry him, the case for settling for Mr. Good Enough.
1: Right, which I have to say is not about settling. I lost that title battle.
0: I think with I the think publisher. so many women got upset and and men. After well, that.
1: I, I think they did until the people who read it. I mean, I still get mail all the time from people, every week I get several letters from people who have said it saved their relations relationship um it helped them meet their partner whether it's a man or a woman um you know um
0: because we because we you think we expect perfection and if there's one thing wrong we flip out
1: i think that people actually don't have high enough standards in a lot of ways which is which is funny because people think the book is about lowering your standards but i think that people don't have high enough standards about the things that matter the book is is a very um extensively researched book. It's not my opinion. Um, it's actually I as a journalist i was I was talking to experts in various fields about you know, from behavioral economics to sociologists to historians to divorce experts to psychologists. and um you know a lot of people um they don't put enough value on things like, Um, responsibility or generosity, and I mean by generosity, emotional generosity. Um, You know, do you have the same values? Do you want the same things in life? Kindness, respect. So many times people will be like, I'm so obsessed with this person, and the person treats them horribly. Um, and they keep going after those kinds of people. And so it's really about having higher standards about what you want in a partner and, yes, letting go of some of the things that don't matter. And I think that, you know, the whole book is, a, is kind of, um, a, you know, kind of unravels all of the research on what are some of the ways that people end up picking partners that – aren't right for them and for, you know, all kinds of reasons. And I think that's the same thing we do in the therapy room and even in the Dear Therapist column, right? That's something that people write in about all the time or, you know, I'm with this guy, I'm with this girl, and this is so confusing to me. And it's, like, very clear from the outside. And I'll bet if they ran it by their friends, it would be very clear too.
0: So so uh, Lori Gottlieb, uh, you know, author of Marry Him, The Case for Settling for Mr. Goodenough, and your upcoming book, uh, maybe you should talk to someone, which I can't wait to read one of the early drafts, and we'll have you on the podcast again to talk about it. You've you, you've been kind enough to answer so many questions I've had about uh, my own therapy sessions. Uh, you you asked me earlier what make why would I stop or what makes for me not such a good therapist. I've had all kinds of therapists, so sometimes therapists will be talking on the phone like. For half my session sometimes therapists will be telling me they're they're about their vacation for half the session sometimes sometimes i would get the sense therapists were just trying to make me feel good about myself Mm. and i didn't and it wasn't necessarily solving my issues uh other times therapists would look around their room to find samples that of drugs that Pharmaceutical companies that sent them and say to me, Hey, here, try this. So there's lots of reasons. That's why I say eighty percent, not every therapist is good. Eighty percent I've usually found is is not so good for whatever reason. But the twenty percent that's great has really changed my life and and done well for me. But I look so much forward to maybe you should talk to someone and for you to come back on the podcast. Thank you great. for coming. Well, it's
1: me. been really fun. Thanks for having Thank me. Thank
0: you. That was that was fun.
1: Yeah, yeah, wow. <laughs> That's, that was that was really, um, I can't believe people were talking on the phone in your therapy.
0: Yeah, he would get That's phone crazy. calls, and he would be arguing, like, you have to pay this bill, and meanwhile... I was surprised at that, too, actually. Meanwhile, he would, like, pick up some pill that was on the floor and, like, throw it over me and, like, yell out, like, here, try this. It would be, like, Suraquel, like, some kind of major, yeah, yeah. you know... Uh,
1: Mood Stabilizer. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Not only mood stabilizer, I would sleep for 27 hours. Yeah. So it's just, I had some crazy therapists. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or Mc Sandwich. But you're the Filet-O-Fish Sandwich all day.